0: What does it look like when Jesus comes crashing into your life? What does it look like when the Spirit of God so fills and empowers the church that we see God truly working supernaturally in a people? So far as we've gone through the first two chapters of the book of Acts, this history of the early church, we've seen that it looks like seeking God with Uh, All of our hearts in fervent prayer, seeking his empowerment, seeking his fullness. And we've seen that it looks also like unhindered worship from the heart where we're seeking God and praising him because we're moved with our affections as well well as with our wills and our minds to, to praise him, to declare his glories, no matter what it looks like. And now as we close into the tail end of the second chapter of the book of Acts, we see something more. What happens when the Spirit falls? What happens is we see a devotion to a new community. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. We're reading verse 42 to 47. You can follow along as we see this first description of the early followers of Jesus after the Spirit of God had fallen. For they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of To the breaking of bread and to the prayers, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, And enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Here we see the earliest followers of Jesus, his church, the family of God, and they are filled or empowered with the Holy Spirit. And what do we see? But we see a radical devotion to the new community Are you devoted to this new community, the family of God, the church? Did you notice these early Christians, did you notice their core commitments? It says in verse 42 that they were devoted to the fellowship. They had a a radical commitment, a devotion to each other. Uh, The author of the book of Hebrews says, Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, he says, But encourage one another daily. To meet together, what is, what is the fellowship? If they were devoted to this new community, what is the fellowship? It's the Greek word koinonia. It's, it's best described with English terms like community or fellowship or communion. It speaks of a, a joint participation, a sharing of life, a, a family intimacy, koinonia, or fellowship. It occurs 19 times in the New Testament. It means this, this mutual belonging to one another. It speaks of mutual obligation, of loyalty, of belonging to one another, of, of solidarity with one another. It's, it's the word for fellowship. And they were devoted to this new community, to sharing life together, to actively participating in this mystical body of Jesus, the church, the family of God you know the these early followers of Jesus facing a hostile world they were rejected by their family they were rejected by their friends because they had abandoned the gods of Rome or in this instance they were turning their back on the religion of the synagogue because they were worshipping the one that they saw all of that pointing to in Jesus the Messiah the Christ And and facing absolute hostility, losing their jobs, losing their family, losing their synagogue, losing their network, losing support from every angle, alone with a hostile world. All these early followers of Jesus had, and they weren't even yet called Christians, but all they had was one another. And there was a loyalty, an absolute commitment, a devotion to the fellowship. It says they were devoted to the fellowship. But did you notice beyond that the triple repetition throughout this passage? A word that in the English translation appears three times in verse 44. And these early Christians, they were together. And in verse 46, they attended the temple. That is, they worshipped in the temple courts together. And later on, it says they broke bread in their homes together. Together, 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 devoted to the fellowship. You know, in the 1990s, I I ran a ministry in this church as an intern. And... uh, I was a singles director and we had a singles group. And, uh, what would happen is, is we always had about 10 to 12 people in this singles group. And, and I was the leader. And, and, uh, I remember it was always a different 12 because there were always six people walking in the door and there were always six people getting ready to walk out the door. And they'd walk in and they'd say, Wow, I finally found a place that fits. This is wonderful. And then then within six months to a year, they'd be walking out for the last time, shaking the dust off their feet, saying, I don't know why I ever came here. This is doing nothing for me. And and I didn't really understand uh, what was going on. I, I, I called it, not to them, but to myself. I thought of it as revolving door ministries because it was a revolving door of people coming and going and no one ever sticking, no one growing, no one lasting. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really understand what I was doing wrong because I'd get this dozen people together and we'd meet in the church parlor and I'd lecture them for 45 minutes about theology. And then we'd go home. And Honestly, it never dawned on me that what was missing was the context in which that theology could have had power. Because the context here in the book of Acts, the context in the early church, the context always from, from Genesis to Revelation is always the context of the community of God's people, of mutual loyalty and relatedness and devotion to one another, being together in our homes, being together in the church, being together all the time, both both the big picture, temple court, gathered worship, and the small picture, having a meal together around a table, uh, you know, what was missing was the context of the community within which that word would have had such power had I known to devote myself to the relationships, to the people, to investing and going deep. You know, this picture of devotion to the new community is so different from our modern consumer notion of relationships you know all of our relationships today are are basically consumer driven they're basically commodities in which we're consumers buying products you know the way it works is is you know you pick a grocery store you pick a grocery store because it has a product that you want, and they're offering it at a price that you are willing to pay, and so long as it's a product you want at a price you're willing to pay, you are committed to that grocery store. But if that grocery store stops selling the product you want, or if they increase the price to a price you're no longer willing to pay, then you leave that grocer behind and go find a different grocery store. You go to Schnucks, or you go to Shop and Save, or you go to Aldi's, or or you go to Straub's, or you go to Dearburg's, or wherever, because you want a grocer that offers the product you want at a price you're willing to pay your relationship with your grocer is a consumer-driven relationship based around commodities and prices that's the same thing when you need an oil change the people you go to for your oil change you know so long as they have a product you want for a price you're willing to pay then that relationship continues but if that changes you go elsewhere it's the same thing with a restaurant you know i go to a restaurant cuz i like their hamburger and they have a bun that's gluten free and that doesn't have any milk in it because i have allergies and, and so long as they're providing a product i want at at a price i'm willing to pay i continue but should they change their product to something i no longer want Or should they increase their price to one I'm no longer willing to pay? It's a commodity, and I'm a consumer, and that's the nature of the relationship. Now, we do the same thing with a boyfriend or with a girlfriend, where so long as that boy or girlfriend is providing a product, a commodity that you want, and so long as the price is one that you're willing to pay, then you continue in that relationship, consumer-driven, with that girlfriend or boyfriend. But But the minute that they change or you see something about them that you no longer want, or the price of being in relationship with them goes up to the point where you're no longer willing to pay, then you get rid of that commodity and go find another. The relationship is consumer-driven. We do it the same thing in the United States with marriages, where so long as your spouse is a product that you want and the price of your spouse is one you're willing to pay, then you stay in the marriage, but as soon as that changes, you're gone. And then we do that with churches. You know, so long as it's the programs I want, the preaching I want, the worship that I want, and so long as it's a price I'm willing to pay in terms of being here and investing, I'll continue. But as soon as something changes, it's a commodity. And what we see in the book of Acts, is something radically different. What we see in the book of Acts is a picture of relationships that are not consumer-driven and people that are not commodities, a community that is not a commodity, people that I am investing in and committed to because they're the family of God, they're the people of God, and I'm devoted to them, and I'm going to be together with them in corporate worship and together with them in my home, breaking bread and eating together, and we'll be together, and I'll be devoted to them. And and when they change and no longer feel like they're meeting my needs, I'm still committed because I'm devoted to them. When the cost suddenly escalates because something happens, I'm still committed. I'm still invested because the people of God are not a consumer product. They're not a commodity, and I am not a consumer. I belong to Jesus, and he's redeemed me, and he's put me in, in his family, and so I'm devoted to them. We were made for relationships. God in the beginning said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, because within the Holy Trinity, already in Genesis 1, before creation, there was already a multiplicity and yet unity, one God yet with three persons speaking to one another, let us make man in our image, and then creating human beings for this community to enter into their community, to enter into their koinonia, the fellowship of the Holy. Spirit, this amazing dance of of God, eternally then creating out of His overflow of love this universe to join into that fellowship and into that delight, and then when He redeems us, He brings us back into that community, loyalty to Him and loyalty to one another. There was never a time in which there was not relationship, because God was an eternal community. There was never a time in which there was not love and devotion. They were devoted to this new community. What does devotion mean? It's, it's the language of worship. Devotion is a serious word. The Bible instructs us that no one should be worshipped but God alone. You think of the book of Revelation when, when John the Apostle sees this bright, glorious angel and John bows down before the angel and the angel rebukes him and says, John, don't do it. I'm a creature too. Worship God alone. And so why would we then be called to have devotion to a group of people and not just to God alone, but that Jesus is saying here that when you come into my fellowship, when you devote yourself to me, it's a package deal. You're also devoting yourself to my bride, the church. St. Augustine said you can't have God as your father without having the church As your mother, when he calls you into new life, he's calling you into a people where your basic identity is not as an individual but as a part of this larger community, the church, where it's not personal and private. It is corporate, gathered, but also personally invested. Devotion to the fellowship. And this was a totalizing devotion, a devotion that that made other commitments pale in comparison. Notice how the gospel changed their attitude toward their income. In verse 44, verse 45, they they sold their property and gave it to the church to anyone as they had need because even their possessions were no longer individually their own. They were the churches because they viewed the basic unit of society not as the individual or as the family, but as the people of God, the family of God. And so this is sacrificial giving, saying, I'm going to sacrifice for the people I love, for the people that I am, you know. You're going to sacrifice for your family. If your child or or your brother is in terrible need, dire straits, desperately needing help, you're going to sell whatever you have to sell. Sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice. Take out whatever loans you've got to take out. You're going to make sure that your family is taken care of because your family, they're your family and you're devoted to them. You know, when a young guy gets his first car, You've seen this young man gets his first car and he devotes all of his time and energy and money into that car. He cleans the car. He waxes it. He then cleans it again and waxes it again just because he wants to spend time on it. He, he shines up the tires. He puts armor all, all over the vinyl thinking it's actually leather. And, because he's, he loves that thing. It's his car and it's all of his time and all of his money goes to it until something happens. And the young man meets this girl, this young woman, and suddenly all of his time he wants to spend with her and he wants to spend all his money on her and he wants to take her out to eat and he wants to buy her clothes and he wants to spend time because the, the object of his devotion has changed from the car to this young woman in whom he delights. You know, to be devoted to someone, it's the opposite of cynicism. It's the opposite of judgment. To be devoted means that you quit judging them. You quit criticizing them. You quit complaining about them. When you do have to criticize them, you do it ever so gently because it's coming out of your devotion to them because you're committed to them. It means you stop evaluating them as a consumer product whose purpose is to meet your needs because you're there to meet their needs, not them yours, because you're devoted. You know, all you care about is that your church is thriving, that your brothers and sisters are growing in grace and love, and you're ready to sacrifice for them, to do them good, because you're devoted to the fellowship. And this is a continual commitment of the heart and soul. The Greek here is that they were constantly devoting themselves to the fellowship. Literally, they remained constant in the fellowship. It was continual. Do Do you love the church? Do you delight in it? Do you want to sacrifice for the fellowship, for the koinonia, a long-term investment in what really matters, the people of God, a new community inaugurated by Christ? See, Jesus isn't calling you to go to church. He's calling you to devote yourself to the church. Now, this is not necessarily an easy thing to risk because that kind of community can be very, very scary for some of us. I mean, what if these people reject me? What if they try to control me? What if they try to force me to be someone I'm not? There are so many reasons why we might want to be incredibly hesitant about committing ourselves to any human community made up of fallen, broken sinners like us. I mean, let's face it, a lot of us in this room have been really burned by churches before. So what is it that Jesus puts into the heart of this new community to help make it a safe place, a place of acceptance, a place of security, a place where all of us are learning to become more accepting and less controlling and less critical and less judgmental? What did Jesus put at the heart of that community that would have the kind of liberating power to make it safe? It's the only thing that could ever make a group of sinful women and men safe is he put at the heart of it the gospel. He put grace at its center. What we see at the center of this community is that they were gathering together around the grace of God, around the means of grace. We see Them gathering together in the temple, gathering together in the home. There's both the breadth and the depth of community, both the large group and the small group. And yet what they were gathering around was the gospel. They were devoted to the fellowship and to the apostles' teaching. That's the gospel That Jesus has already done everything necessary for your salvation and there is nothing you're going to do to embellish that. That you are already saved and redeemed. That the message is one not of trying harder and doing better, but of resting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. That was the apostolic message centered in, in the New Testament that we have today. The apostles teaching. Are you putting the means of grace at the center of your community? You know... They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the gospel in the New Testament. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. That's with the definite article the breaking. That's that's the Lord's Supper. That's the sacrament. Uh, you know what matters about the sacrament is not what's going on in your head or what you do, but what it's speaking, which is that Jesus already did everything for you, and the monkey's off your back. It was at the center. It was a devotion, and they were devoted to the prayers the greek is plural with a definite article the prayers Uh, that's because this is what they did in synagogue worship where they would approach god and 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 there would be a liturgical prayer in which a, a request was set out and all the people would together say amen or so be it or 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 your will be done and and this is what was happening in the, the early church. They were devoted to this kind of praying together as the people of God, where, where in 1 Corinthians, Paul can even say, don't pray anything unless, unless it's understandable to everyone. Otherwise, he says, they won't know how to say the, the Amen. It's a liturgical prayer, but they were devoted to seeking God by grace through prayer together and and approaching the Lord's Supper and receiving grace together there and, and putting themselves under the apostles teaching that the grace of God would wash over them. It's the only thing that could make such a community safe. These are what theologians call the outward and ordinary means of grace. The word, the sacrament, the prayers. It's, it's what the spirit of Jesus uses. It's the highway he travels down to work in our hearts. You know, I've... I've seen churches that abuse, churches that are not safe. They're toxic and they burn people. and And maybe they have the Bible in them, and maybe they they do pray, and maybe they even have sacraments. But usually, it's all oriented wrong. It's all distorted. It's all not about what Jesus did in His grace and the gospel. It becomes all about us. It's what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for when he when he he talked about them, saying, you know that that. That they'll stand and pray and say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like evil men like this tax collector. And then a tax collector is there beating his breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the one is praying and it's all about himself and the other's praying and it's all about God's mercy. And he says, the guy who knows he's a sinner, who's praying for God's mercy, that's the one. Who leaves justified. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders saying that that they diligently study the scriptures because they think that by them they possess eternal life. But Jesus said, These are the scriptures that testify about me. It's all about the gospel. It's not just saying we want word, sacrament, and prayer, the means of grace at the center of the community, but we want the gospel itself. All of these things pointing us outward beyond ourselves to Jesus and what he has done. That's what can form gospel community, letting the gospel take center stage and forming us as a people around Jesus loved by him. Are you immersed in gospel community? You know, in my decades here in one church, it's been 23 years now, this August, and I can say that the single most consistent marker for those who thrive in Jesus versus those who flounder, besides the gospel itself, the single biggest marker, whether you're an addict or an adulterer or a liar or a crook or a self-righteous religious bigot, when you come in, the single biggest marker for whether you end up thriving and coming alive in Jesus Long term is whether you're committed to the fellowship, whether you're devoted to being and living life deep with the people of God. Not just five years, 10 years, but for a lifetime. You know, are you going to let the gospel shape you in community? Are you going to let it form you? It's the nursery within which Christian faith and maturity is nurtured and fed. You know, we elders have been working on a shepherding model, um and it's taking longer than planned because there's a lot going on but but we've been working on this and the basic idea of it is that we're understanding that all of you 270 of you are ministers of the gospel by appointment of god himself you have gifts you have abilities you have the gospel of grace at work in your life and and the bible says in first corinthians 6 that all of you even the least mature among you is competent to counsel. You're competent not to speak a word of the Lord into somebody's life. You're not competent for that. But you're competent to apply the gospel, to help them believe the good news, what God says about them, that that they're called and loved and safe, and that Jesus has their back and that he's trustworthy. That's the gospel over time, creating a safe, secure community. Ray Ortland says this. He says, the family of God is where people behave in a new way. He says, I think of it with a simple equation. Gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. The family of God, he says, is where people should find lots of gospel, lots of safety, and lots of time. You know, a new community is a place where it's safe to be a sinner. It's safe to struggle. It's safe to be honest. It's not a place where a good person tells other good people how to become better. Oh, it's a new community where the single most important reality is that we have been loved by a Savior. You know, you can't pay your bills. Your relationships are a wreck. Your addictions are keeping you back. Depression is pressing you down. Jesus loves to open the doors of his church, to bid in the broken and the bruised and the poor and the needy to come in and find grace, the welcome in a healing community. That's gospel community. Are you immersed in it? Scott Sauls tells a story about a nursery worker in a church he worked in who who had bumped into a first-time visitor named Janet, and Janet had just dropped off her two boys in the nursery, and, and Saul describes it. He says after the service, while Janet was waiting in the nursery line to to pick up her two boys, one of the nursery workers quietly approached her and explained to her that there, there had been some issues. Uh, both of her boys had picked fights with other children in the nursery, and one of her boys had, had broken several of the toys that belonged to the church, and. And in front of this room filled with other children and their parents, Janet scolded her boys and then screamed in a bellowing voice, a loud expletive that most of us would never even think about saying in the church when other people are around. And she's deeply ashamed, felt like a failure. Janet got her boys and skulked out of the building and no doubt everyone thought we're never going to see her again. But that nursery volunteer on Monday called the church office and asked whether Janet had left any uh, information, an address or a phone number. And she got the information and sent Janet a note. And the note read something like this. Dear Janet, I am so glad that you and your boys visited our church. Oh, and about that little exchange when you picked them up from the nursery let's just say that I found it so refreshing that you would feel the freedom, the safety to speak with an honest vocabulary like that in the church. I'm really drawn to honesty, and you're clearly an honest person, and I hope we can become friends. And she signed it love and put her name the nursery worker and, and Janet did in fact become friends. Janet came back the next Sunday and the Sunday after that and then the Sunday after that. And eventually Janet actually became the director of the very nursery, the very church nursery where she had blown up on her very first visit. Later on, it would come out that when Janet first started coming to the church, she was a recovering heroin addict. She was depressed. She was at the end of a rope. Her boys were out of control. She didn't know if she could go on but she encountered gospel community. No judgment, no criticism, no one taking offense at anything anyone had done anywhere, just acceptance and love, a safe place for an overwhelmed heroin addict mother of two unruly boys who are sinners loved by Jesus just like the rest of us. Sinners being shaped by love as they became immersed in gospel community over years. It changed them such that Janet could now lead a major Christian ministry. How's it possible? They were devoted to this new community. Are you devoted to it? Because at its center is the gospel of God's grace and his means of grace. How's it possible to make this kind of commitment? Friends, it's possible because Jesus is working among us. Look at verse 47. He was adding to their number daily, those who were being saved these these Christians were seeing the spirit of Jesus right there in their midst, changing people 's hearts daily. they were seeing Jesus adding to their number, not people finding God, but Jesus melting their hearts and capturing our hearts and when the spirit of God comes and fills the church, Jesus unleashes his gospel. And those of us who've never had interest in him find ourselves falling in love with a God that before did not even want to know. Jesus is continually creating this new community. It's his work, and and specifically it's possible because he saves Verse 47, that's the language that he uses to describe it because Jesus was saving people daily. They were being saved. That's a a past tense finished thing that you're now, if you're a Christian, you're now in a state of having previously been saved. It is done. You have already been rescued. That's what Jesus did on the cross when he bore our sins. It means that when you come to Jesus, that you are saved fully, finally, and forever because the penalty that you should have paid has been paid by another. Jesus has absorbed the judgment of God in your place as as if the full weight of all of the consequences for everything we had ever done against God and against his image and other people, all that we had coming our way as a consequence was collapsing inward on us and Jesus was the one who stepped in and took the weight of that for us so that we might be rescued. I read the news account of a building collapse in China. Rescue workers had been laboring for over 12 hours at the site of four collapsed residential buildings. And at this point, there would be no more survivors. The cement floors had collapsed like pancakes, one on top of the next, and no one could have survived. So the project at that point had transitioned into an effort not to find and rescue, but merely an effort to locate the bodies. And as they found one more victim, they found uh, Wu Ningxi. He was found buried deep in a massive pile of crumbled cement where the buildings, poorly constructed, overcrowded, rain-laden, had once stood. And as they worked to recover his dead body from the rubble, they discovered something they did not expect. This man, Wu Ningxi, had positioned his body in just such a position as to take the weight of the collapse above him. And he had contorted himself in such a way as to create a tiny pocket of air beneath his chest. And as the workers dug out the sand and the rock from around Wu Ning Shi's corpse, they saw the man's arms were still cradling something. And as they dug further, they found, wrapped tightly in this man's arms, the body of his three-year-old daughter still grasped in his dead, cold arms, and as they cleaned her off, she felt warm, and they saw that she was breathing, that this little baby girl was alive, that her father had let all the weight of the collapse of this building fall on him and crush him in order to rescue his baby girl who was still in his arms, in the arms of love, the child who he had rescued. The man was 26 years old, and yet his little girl sustained only minor injuries. One worker told reporters, and I quote, The child was able to survive entirely thanks to the fact that her dad used his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for his daughter. Friends, if you know Jesus, that should sound immensely familiar to you because you have been loved and rescued. The one who loved you and rescued you did so by using his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for you, his friend. That's what Jesus did on the cross to form us into his new community, a community of those who had been rescued, a community of those who had been loved, who had been saved. It's possible, friends, because Jesus is devoted to you. Jesus is that young man who neglected his new car when he fell head over heels in love with this girl named the church. The Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ, as his fiance, as his betrothed, as the one that he loves, the one who loves your soul. That makes Jesus the bridegroom, the lover who sacrifices everything for the one he loves. Do you hear his passion for you? Do you hear his delight, the singing as he sings over you with joy, as he delights in you, his heart's desire, the apple of his eye, his pride and joy. the one. Who who loves you friends when a man falls in love and falls hard there is nothing that can stop him and jesus is saying i love you i love you completely i would die for you and that's what he's done because he loves you and he's not willing to live without you he gives his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for you, so that the spirit of Jesus might come crashing into your life, forming you and shaping you and pulling you together, devoted to one another, devoted to the fellowship of the one who is devoted to you. Jesus is saying, when you build this new community when you speak of its beauty and you speak of its challenges, when you explain it to your children and explain it to your friends, as you build its structures and seek to take care of those within it, as you Face the future and commit yourself now to this new life together as you build this new community together. Make at its center your lover, the one who is passionate for you, your heroic God and Savior who died for you when you were his enemy in order to make you his bride. Make the center of this new community, the message of grace, the center of it, the message of the gospel, the story of salvation, not what we've done for God, but what he has done for us Let that shape you and define you and pull you together that you would be loved and would live as one who is loved. Don't make it all about what a great church we are. Make it about what a great rescuer Jesus is. Stephen Mansfield tells a true story about a church that had this Really thriving ministry to men. And for years, the driving force behind this, Ben's ministry, was a guy named Taylor. And Taylor's ministry thrived for years. There were lives changed, community that was impacted. But in the midst of a a major transition within the church, Taylor ended up getting really deeply hurt by his own Christian community. And he left the church. And he wouldn't talk to anybody. People figured he'd come back eventually. But he didn't. And so finally, after trying to reach out unsuccessfully, some of the men in the church took it on themselves to reach out to Taylor more aggressively. And after some uh, discussion with the other guys at church, they came up with a plan. And I don't necessarily recommend this, but this is what they decided. That they were going to set up camp in Taylor's yard. 150 Christian men, his brother's, in Christ, And so they set up rotating shifts and said that they weren't going to leave until Taylor came out to them. They had electric lines running from neighboring houses to power televisions. About 20 smokers and grills were making barbecue on one side. They were in for the long haul, and they even had big signs all over the place saying, Taylor, come out. We love you. Taylor, we know you're in there. And Taylor... They, didn't appreciate it. Um, He even called the cops uh, on his former friends. Uh, As a matter of fact, the police showed up twice a day for almost a week. And every time they came, Taylor would, of course, open the door to explain to them the situation. And every time the men camping in his yard uh, would see the door open, they would explode with cheers until Taylor finished his chat with the police and then went back inside. But on the sixth day... When Taylor opened the door for the police and the men exploded with cheers, Taylor finally broke down and he started crying his eyes out. He sputtered how sorry he was, and then he came out from his porch and greeted the guys who had camped in his yard and refused to go away. They were family, and he knew he belonged, and they were his brothers. They were his people. They were his fellowship, and they were the only people in the world who could have gotten away with it, the only people who could get through to him a message that he was love, that this was family. It was koinonia the devoted and loyal body of Jesus, his new community of grace, the community of Jesus who used his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for you that together you might be devoted to the body, to the fellowship of the one who is devoted to you. Let's pray.